the Columbia Network takes pleasure in bringing you Suspense. Suspense. Columbia's parade of outstanding thrillers, produced by William Spear and scored by Bernard Herrmann. Notable melodramas from stage and screen, fiction and radio, presented each week to bring you to the edge of your chair, to keep you in suspense. Tonight's story, by the noted American author T.S. Stribling, deals with a crime of murder on an exotic and atmospheric island with ragged beggars who slept in a Hindu temple and awoke with gold in their pockets and a dead girl lying near them and with a strange and mystical entrance into the life of hereafter, which was the experience of an American psychologist. For your suspenseful listening... We invite you to join us for A Passage to Benares. In Porto, Spain, in Trinidad, at half past five in the morning, Mr. Henry Pajoli, an American psychologist, stirred uneasily, became conscious of a splitting headache opened his eyes in bewilderment, and then, with a shock, saw where he was. He got up, arranged his clothing. He tried with his neat psychological mind to recapture his dream, to bottle up again the little smoking wisps that still floated about within his aching head. By seven o'clock, he had found his way back to the house of Mr. Lowe, his host in Port of Spain. Lowe was already about his coffee, with an interested spoon poised above the morning paper. Ah, there you are. Good morning, Bargioli. I say, you are quiet. Didn't hear you get up at all. Have some breakfast? Oh, thanks. I have uh, been out for a breath of air. What's the news today? Well, the new governor will arrive in Trinidad on the 12th, and, uh, uh... Hello. Now the natives killed his wife. Tell me, Pajoli, as a psychologist, why do coolies kill their wives? Oh, for various reasons, I imagine. Let's hear some of the facts. Oh, I say this is a coincidence. Really putting on a show for you, Pajoli, on your first visit to Trinidad. How so? Well, you... You remember that wedding procession you and I watched last evening down, yeah. the, down at the Hindu temple? The temple? Oh, of course, the cream-colored little bride with the breastplates and the linked gold coins and the anklets and all the finery. Mm -hmm. And the bridegroom. What did you say his name was? Budman Lal? Yes. Well, do you know what's happened? Budman Lal is in jail this morning and his cream-colored little bride is dead with her throat cut. No. Do they think he did it? No doubt of it. That's why he's in jail now. He always seemed like a sensible fellow, too. One of our best patrons. Which only proves my contention, Pajoli. A bridegroom of only six or eight hours killing his wife without any reason at all. 
Oh, there's usually some reason for murder. Maybe. But I say, oh boy, you're, you're missing the point completely. How? Well, suppose you actually had gone and slept in the temple there last night. Mm-hmm. You wanted to, you know, remember? And I said, no white man ever stays all night in a coolie temple. You remember? Yes, I remember. You said it simply isn't done. Well, if... If you had, Pajoli, I say, uh, that would have been a pretty kettle, wouldn't it? Yes. Yes. Well, I'm afraid I'll be mixed up in this. Both Mr. Lal and his uncle, Hira Das, are clients of mine. Old Hira Das has upwards of $5 million in my bank. Hira Das? Didn't you tell me he built that temple where the murder took place? Yes. It's what the Hindus call a temple and rest house. Hira Das gives rice and tea to any traveler who comes in for the night. It's an Indian custom to help mendicant pilgrims. A rich Indian will build a temple and rest house just just as you Americans erect libraries. Ah. What does it say there about the murder, though? Um, Budman Lal, nephew of the famous Mr. Hirad Das, was arrested early this morning at his home for the alleged murder of his wife, whom he married yesterday. The body was found at six o'clock this morning in the temple where the wedding ceremony took place. The temple attendants gave the alarm. The victim's head was severed completely from her body and all her jewelry was gone. Five coolie beggars who were asleep in the temple when the body was discovered were arrested. They all claimed ignorance of the crime, but a search of their persons revealed that each beggar had a piece of the bride's jewelry and a coin from her necklace. Mr. Budman Lal and his wife were seen to enter the temple at about 11 last night for the Hindu rite of purification. Mr. Lal, who is a prominent curio dealer, declines to say anything further. Doesn't tell you very much, does it? Ah, not much. What do you make of those beggars? Oh, that's simple enough. Those devils laid in wait inside the temple until the husband went out and left his wife. Then they murdered her and divided the spoil. Ah, but she had enough bangles and jaws to give a dozen to each man. Yes, yes, you're quite right, Pajoli. That's a fact. Why should they continue sleeping in the temple after they'd killed her if they did murder her? Well, why shouldn't they? They knew they'd be suspected and they couldn't get off the island without capture, so they thought they might as well lie down again and go back to sleep. Hmm. You may be right, Lowe, but that doesn't look like the solution to me. Well, I'm satisfied that's how it occurred. You mean the beggars killed her? Mm-hmm. Well, I don't think so. I rather fancy that the actual murderer took the girl's jewelry and went about the temple thrusting a bangle and a coin in the pockets of each of the sleeping beggars to lay a false scent. Oh, 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 oh. come now. That's laying it on a bit too thick, Butcher. My dear Lowe, that's the only possible explanation for the coins in the beggar's pockets. I say, oh boy, you've had lots of experience in these things. Come along with me and we'll go up and see Mr. Hirad Daz and see if we can't help his nephew. I'll be glad to. But we'll go to the temple first. Then we'll call on Mr. Hiradas. Well, here we are. In spite of the police guard at the door, the temple doesn't look sinister in the daylight. No, yeah, it just looks dirty. Well, let's go in and question the beggars. Excuse me, um, did any of you fellows hear noises in this temple last night? Oh, much sleep, Saeed. No noise. Policeman Pancho's wake this morning makes it still here. 
What's your name? Shooter Chan Saib. When did you go to sleep last night? When I ate rice and tea, Saib. Mm-hmm. Do you remember seeing Budman Lal and his wife enter this building last night? Uh, yes, remember, Saib. Did you see them go out? Uh, no, Saib. No one remember go out. You were all asleep then, huh? All asleep, Saib. Did you have any dreams during your sleep? Hear any noises? Uh, I dream bad dreams, Saib. Huh? When policeman punched me awake this morning, I think dream has come true. And me, Saib. Me too. Me. Did you all have bad dreams? Yes. All oh, have bad dreams. Have Look here, Pajoli. I, I, I don't see where this is getting us. I do think we ought to be getting on to old Haradaz's house. No, I think we can now entirely discard the theory that the beggars murdered the girls. On what grounds? They told you nothing except that they all had bad dreams? That's the reason. They all had wild, fantastic dreams. That suggests that they were given some sort of opiate in their rice or tea last night. It's quite improbable that five ignorant coolies would have wit enough to concoct such a piece of evidence as that. Mm, that's a fact, but I don't believe a Trinidad court would admit such evidence. We're not looking for legal evidence. We're after some indication of the real criminal. Now I suggest that we get onto the house of Hiradas. Please come in, gentlemen. I've been expecting you. Please be seated. Thank you. Thank you. A most mysterious murder in the life of my poor nephew will depend upon your exertions, gentlemen. Tell me, what do you think of the beggars that were found in the temple with the bangles and coins? Well, I'm afraid my judgment of the beggars will disappoint you, Mr. Hiradas. Huh? My theory is that they're innocent of the crime. Really? Why do you say that? Because they told me of dreams they had. And all their dreams were very nearly identical. You are not English, sir. No Englishman would have thought of that. No, I'm American with a backlash sprinkling of, uh, of Italian. My name's Pagioli. What is your profession, Mr. Pagioli? You are a detective? No, Mr. Das. I'm a psychologist. Ah. Your soul is at least groping after knowledge. However, it gropes as a blind worm, Mr. Poggioli. And we must find the criminal who committed this crime and thus restore my nephew, Boodman Lal, to liberty. You can imagine what a blow this has been to me after I arranged this marriage for my nephew. You did... arranged a marriage for a nephew who is in his thirties? Yes, Mr. Poggioli. Mm. I wanted him to avoid the pitfalls into which I fell. Ah. He was unmarried, and he'd already begun to add dollars to dollars. I did the same thing. And now, look at me. An empty old man in a foreign land. What good is this house where men of my own kind can't come and sit with me when I have no grandchildren to romp and play? No. I've piled up dollars and pounds. I, I've eaten the world, Mr. Pajoli, and found it bitter. Now, here I am, an outcast. And why don't you go back to India, Mr. Hiradas? Why, Mr. Pajoli, my mind is half English. If I should return to Benares, I'd walk about thinking what the temples cost. 
How much was the value of the stone set in the eye of Krishna's image? If I would ever be one with my own people again, Mr. Pajoli, I must leave this Western mind and body here in Trinidad. That's um, very interesting and moving, but uh, we were discussing your nephew, Budman Lal. Wait. In searching for the criminal, I would suggest you look for a moneyed man. Let me tell you my suspicions, and you can work out the details. What are they? I went out of the temple this morning to have the body of my poor murdered niece brought here to my villa for burial. I talked to the five beggars, and they told me there was a sixth sleeper in the temple last night. Was there indeed? Yes, Mr. Lowe, a white man. A white man? Yes, Mr. Lowe. All five of the coolies and my man, Guta, told me it was true. But, Mr. Hiradas, decapitation is not an American mode of murder. American? I... I was speaking generally. I mean a white man's method of murder. That is indicative in itself. I meant to call your attention to that point. It shows the white man was a highly educated man who had studied the mental habits of other peoples than his own. So he was enabled to give the crime an extraordinary resemblance to a Hindu crime. But what motive could a white man have? Possibly robbery, Mr. Pajoli. Or if he were a very intellectual man... He might have murdered the poor child by uh, way of experiment. A murder for experiment? Yes, Mr. Lowe. To record this psychological reaction. Why? Oh, I can't entertain such a theory as that, Mr. Hiradas. Oh, no. It is too far-fetched. However, it is worth investigating, is it not? Yes, yes, but I'll... Begin my investigations with the man Guka. By all means, Mr. Pajoli. And in your investigations, gentlemen, hire any assistance you may need. Draw on me for any amount. I want my nephew exonerated. And above all things, I want the real criminal apprehended and brought to the gallows. What do you think of that, Pajoli? White man in that temple. Ah, sounds like pure fiction to me, to, to shield Bob and Lyle. You know, these fellows hang together like thieves. Say, it's a jolly good thing we didn't decide to sleep in the temple last night, isn't it? You know, in my opinion, Lo, the actual criminal is Boodman Lyle. Ah, same here. I've thought so ever since I first saw the account in the paper. Somehow these fellows will chop their wives to pieces for no reason at all. Lo, what do you know about Boodman Lyle? Well, he, he was born here and has always been a figure because of his rich uncle. Lived here all his life? Uh-huh. Except when he was in Oxford for six years. Oh, he was an Oxford man. Huh? Yes, yes. Uh, there you are. That's the trouble. I don't understand. What do you mean, Pajoli? No doubt he fell in love with some English girl, but when old Hira Das chose a Hindu child for his wife, Budman couldn't refuse marriage. No man's going to quarrel with a $5 million legacy... 
Then he chose this ghastly method of getting rid of the child bride. Uh, I dare say you're right. I feel sure Bowman Lal killed the girl. George, I'm getting tired of walking. There's a cab. Let's hop it and ride the rest of the way. Hi, cabby. A cab. I see. Oh, hi. Well, aren't you coming? You know, I don't feel that I can conscientiously continue this investigation trying to clear a person whom I have every reason to believe guilty. But, man, don't leave me like this. At least come as far as police headquarters with me and explain your theory about Guga, the temple keeper, and the rice. Well, I... I thought I'd go back to your cottage and pack my things. Pack your things? Oh, your boat doesn't sail until Friday. Yes, I know, but there's a daily service to Curacao. It struck me to go there. Oh, now, come. You can't run off like that just when I've stirred up an interesting murder mystery for you to unravel. Why, Bojoli, you ought to appreciate my efforts as a host more than that. Well, all right, then. To the police station. Yes, sir. Chief Vickers, uh, this is my friend, Mr. Pajoli. Mr. Pajoli, Mr. Vickers is chief of Trinidad's police force. How do you do? How do you do? Uh, chief Vickers, I've, um, I've asked Mr. Pajoli's counsel in the Budman Lal murder case. And he's already developed a theory as to who is the actual murderer of Mrs. Budman Lal. So have I. Now, in this matter, Chief Vickers, I want to be perfectly frank with you. I'll admit we're in this case in the employer of Mr. Haradaz and are making an effort to clear his nephew, Budman Lal. We felt confident you'd use the skill of the police department of Port of Spain to work out a theory clearing Budman Lal just as readily as you would to convict him. Our department usually devotes its time to conviction and not to clearing criminals. Yes, yes, I, I know that, but if our theory will point out the actual murderer... What is your theory? Mr. Pajoli's deduction is based on the dreams of the men who were found in the temple. So Mr. Pajoli's deduction is based on dreams. It would be a remarkable coincidence, Mr. Vickers, if five men had lurid dreams simultaneously without some physical cause. It suggests strongly that their tea or rice was doped. Now, if you find out what soporific was used, then have your men search the sales record of the drugstores in the city to see who has lately bought such a drug. You will find the murderer. Uh-huh. How do you like Trinidad, Mr. Pajoli? I like it very much indeed. You've just arrived, haven't you? Yes. In uh, what university do you teach back in the States? Ohio State. A chair of criminal psychology in an ordinary state university? I'm not a professor. I'm simply a docent, and I haven't specialized on criminal psychology. I, I quiz on general psychology. You're not teaching now? No, this is my sabbatical year. You look young to have taught in the university six years, but then you Americans start young in your land of specialists. Now, are you, uh, Mr. Pajoli, I suppose you're wrapped up heart and soul in your psychology. I am. You'd uh, do anything in the world to advance yourself in the science. I rather think so. Especially keen on original research work. <laughs> That's what he is, Chief Vickers. Do you know what he asked me to do yesterday afternoon? No. What, Mr. Lowe? Oh, I don't think we ought to burden Mr. Vickers with our household anecdotes. Oh, but I'm really curious. Just what did Mr. Pajoli ask you to do yesterday afternoon, Mr. Lowe? Oh, well, really nothing. Nothing at all. It was just a little psychological experiment he wanted to do. And did he do it? Oh, no, 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 no. I wouldn't hear of it. Oh, as uh, unconventional as that? Oh, it was really nothing. Nothing at all. I think I could guess your anecdote if I tried, gentlemen. About a half an hour ago, I received a telephone message from my man stationed at the temple. 
to keep a lookout for you and Mr. Pargioli. A lookout for us? Yes, because one of the coolies under arrest told him that Mr. Pargioli slept in the temple last night. Oh, but that's not true. That's exactly what he didn't do. He suggested it to me, but I said no. You remember, Pargioli, you... You didn't do it. Did you, Pargioli? Did you? You see, he did. Gentlemen, I... I had a perfectly valid and important reason for sleeping in the temple last night, and so I... I can only ask your sympathetic attention to what I'm about to say. Go on. You remember, Lowe, you and I were down there watching a wedding procession. Well, just as the music stopped and the procession entered the building, suddenly it seemed to me as if... as if they'd vanished. Naturally, they'd gone into the building. Oh, no, I don't mean that. I'm afraid you won't understand what I do mean. That the whole procession had ceased to exist, melted into a nothingness. You see, that's really the idea in which the Hindus base their notion of heaven. Oblivion, nothing. Yes, I've heard that before. Well... Our medieval Gothic architecture was the conception of our Western heaven, and I thought perhaps the Indian architecture had somehow caught the motif of the Indian religion, you know, suggested nirvana. That's what amazed and intrigued me. That's why I wanted to sleep in the place. I wanted to see if I could further my shred of impression. Does that make any sense to you, Mr. Vickers? We are not interested why you went, Mr. Pajole. We know a murder took place in the temple. <laughs> you don't can't think that I committed a horrible murder as an experiment. You intellectual chaps do some pretty weird things, Mr. Pajoli. Why, only the other day I was reading about two young oh, intellectuals. Yes, these fellows I read about also tried to turn an honest penny by their murder. I don't suppose you happened to notice yesterday that the little bride, Maila Ran, was almost covered with gold bangles and coins? Of course I noticed it. I had nothing whatever to do with her. I, I, I did sleep in the temple. By the but... way, you say you slept on a rug just as the coolies did. Oh, yes, I did. And you didn't wake up either, Mr. Pajola? No, no. Then did the child's murderer happen to put a coin and a bangle in your pockets just as he did the other sleepers in the temple? I don't know. I, I haven't looked in my pockets since then. Then please do so now, Mr. Pajoli. Oh, yes. Here they are, Mr. Vickers. You don't happen to have any more, do you? No. I've already been through all my pockets and I haven't any more. Well, that's something. Of course, you might have expected just such a questioning as this and provided yourself with these two pieces of gold, but I doubt it. Somehow, I don't believe that you're an experienced enough man to think of such a thing. However, we shall see. I suppose you have no objection, Mr. Pajoli, to my accompanying you over to have a little search of your baggage in Mr. Lowe's cottage. Now then, Mr. Pajoli, be so kind as to open your trunk. Good heavens. Mm-hmm. Just as I thought. A trunk tray full of bangles and coins. I'll say one thing for you, though, Mr. Pajoli. Your nerve almost got you by. But you... You can't believe that I did it. No. You don't believe I did this, do you? I... I... I don't. In your trunk, Pajoli. If I did it, I was sleepwalking. God, to think that it's possible that right here in my own trunk... Well, we might as well start back, I suppose. This is all. I'll, I'll go back with you, Pajoli. I'll see you through 
Somehow I can't. I, I won't believe you did it. Thanks. Thanks. You know, Pajoli, you set out to clear Boatman Lal and, well, dash it all, it looks as if you had. No, he didn't. Boatman Lal was out of jail at least an hour before you fellows came into police headquarters to see me. Out? You mean that you turned him loose? Yes. How's that, Chief Vickers? Because, Mr. Lowe, he didn't go to the temple at all with his wife last night. He went down to Queen's Park Hotel and played billiards till one o'clock. He called up a few friends and proved that easily enough. My word, that, that leaves nobody but... Yes, Pagioli. I don't know anything about it. If I did commit the murder, I was asleep. I don't know anything about it, that's all I can say. I don't know anything about it. Perhaps a rest in jail will help restore your memory. Well, we'll see Come now, Poggioli, old man. Don't be too downhearted. I promise you, I'll do everything I can. In the case against Henry Poggioli, having been duly tried by a jury of your peers, you have been found guilty and by the powers invested in me... I herewith sentence you to be hanged by the neck until you are dead. To recall a lost dream is the most tantalizing task ever a human brain was driven to. But if I lie still long enough on this bunk... Perhaps I can recapture the dream I had in the temple last night. Yes. Yes. It seems to me that the image on the altar moved. And suddenly the dome overhead was opened and left me staring upward into a vast abyss. For I was alone in endless space. For all creatures and all matter that had ever been or ever would be were wrapped up in me. Parcioli. That was my dream. That's an odd thing. Six men dreaming the same dream in different terms. There must be a physical cause for such a phenomenon. Cause! I've got it! Vickers! Flow! I have it! I've solved it! Get me out of here! I know who killed the girl! What is it, my friend? I know who murdered the bride. Hold Hira Dust at it. Now listen. Listen. Go tell Vickers to take the gold he found in my trunk and develop all the fingerprints on it. He'll find Hira Dust's prints. Also tell him to follow out that opiate clue I gave him. He'll find Hira Dust and a man to put the gold in my trunk. See if they don't find brass or steel filings in my room where the scoundrel sat and filed a new key. But they've already done that long ago. They have. But certainly. And old Hyradas confessed everything. Though why a rich old man like him should have murdered a pretty child is more than I can see. But why did he pick on me as a scapegoat? Oh, he explained that to the police. He said he picked out a white man... So the police would make a thorough investigation and be sure to catch him. He did? Aye. 
But what I can't see is why the old boy wanted to be caught and hanged. Why didn't he commit suicide? Why? I know why. Because according to his religion, in that case his soul would have returned in the form of some beast. He wanted to be slain because he expect to, expects to be reborn instantly in Benares with little Maela Ran as his bride instead of his nephew's. He hopes to be a great man with wife and children. All the things he was not here in Trinidad. Yes, yes, you must be right. Why didn't you come and tell me about Hiradas' confession the moment it occurred? What do you mean keeping me here when you know I'm an innocent man? Why didn't you tell me before this? Because I couldn't. Old Hiradas didn't confess until a month and ten days after you were hanged. So ends A Passage to Benares, T.S. Stribling's tale of mysterious death and death mysterious. This was tonight's story of... Suspense. Suspense is produced by William Spear. John Dietz was our guest director this evening. Tonight's radio drama was written by Carol Case and scored by Bernard Herman. Paul Stewart was Pajoli, Barry Kroger was Mr. Hira Das, and Horace Bram played Mr. Lowe. Others in the cast were Alan Hewitt and Guy Rep. Next week at this time, Columbia will bring you another selected story from the world's great literature of thrills, another study in suspense. This is Barry Kroger, and this is the Columbia Broadcasting System. Columbia Network takes pleasure in bringing you Suspense. Suspense. Columbia's play theater of outstanding thrillers. Produced and directed by William Spear scored by Bernard Herrmann. The notable melodramas from fiction and stage and screen from the world's great literature of entertaining excitement presented each week to bring you to the edge of your chair to keep you in suspense. Tonight's story by America's distinguished author playwright Owen Johnson gathers its suspense in a very gentle way. It doesn't have a spectacular finish, garnished with revolver shots. There are no graveyard watches. There's not so much as a single lifeless body, identified or unidentified. It's a tale told in a club room, the Artists and Writers Club in New York. A tale of high-class robbery and suspicion and of how some ladies and gentlemen nervously counted... One hundred in the dark. Ah, that was a 
fine meal. Me for the club anytime. Yeah, here. We can all sit here, Quinty. Yes, if you'll just draw up that chair for Mr. Peters. Oh, yeah. Here you are, Mr. Peters. Thank you. Uh, do you all know Peters? Uh, this is Mr. Steingall. Uh, how do you do? I know you. Uh, Mr. Gollier? Oh, I, I believe we've met. Oh, yes, yes. How are you? Oh, you oh, know each other. Yes, yes. And the one who drew up the chair, Mr. Rankin. How do you do? Thank well, you I, guess, I, I guess we're all acquainted now. Um, to get back to our table discussion, Quinny. Oh, yes, yes. Uh, how about a drink? Who'll join me? Oh, yeah, pleasure. Fine, fine. Uh, John. Well, now, Stangall, as I said, there are only half a dozen stories in the world. What is more to the point? There's every reason yes, to... Yes, sir. What? Oh, uh, five uh, with soda, John. Yes, sir. Now, now, where was I? Oh, yes. What is more to the point, gentlemen, is the small number of human relations that are so simple and yet so fundamental that they can be eternally played upon, redressed and reinterpreted in every language in every age, and yet remain inexhaustible in the possibility of variation. Well, that's true, of course. It's very possible. Take the eternal triangle. Two men and a woman, or two women and a man. Its variations extend to thousands. That right, Rankin? Well, in a way. Ah, here we are. Uh, Set them down right there, John. Very well, sir. A soda. Uh, here you are. Uh, thank you. And you? Uh, 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 soda, Peter? Yes, please. Uh, another one. Here you are. Thanks. And here's yours. Thank you. And now, a little soda in mine. Uh, well, here's to you all. Cheers, cheers. 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 I'm afraid we can't see eye to eye, Quinny. I believe there are situations, original situations, that are independent of your human emotions, that exist just because they are situations, accidental and nothing else. As for instance? Well, I'll just cite an ordinary one that happens to come to my mind. In a group of five men, such as we are here, a theft takes place. One man is the thief. Now, which one? Now, I'd like to know what emotion that interprets. And yet it certainly is an original theme at the bottom of a whole literature. It's not the same thing at all. Ah, detective stories. I could answer that the situation you give can be traced back to the commonest of human emotions. Curiosity. I think uh, Quinny has you there, Rankin. Hmm. What is the peculiar fascination that the detective problem exercises over the human mind? You will say, curiosity. Hmm, Yes. And no. Admit at once that the whole art of a detective story consists in the statement of the problem. Anyone can do it. I can do it. Steingall can do it. Uh, Rankin, I believe even you can do it. (laughs) (laughs) The solution doesn't count. It is usually banal. It should be prohibited. What interests us is, can we guess it? There you have it. The problem, the detective story. Now, why the fascination? I'll tell you. It appeals to our curiosity. Yes. But deeper, to a sort of intellectual vanity. Five men present. The theft takes place. Who's the thief? Who will guess it first? Whose brains will show its superior cleverness? You see? That's all. That's all there is to it. Out of all of which, the interesting thing is that Rankin has supplied the reason why the supply of detective fiction is inexhaustible. It does all come down to the simplest terms. Five possibilities... One answer. Well, the reason is that the situation does constantly occur. 
It's a situation that any of us might get into any time. Yes, I know of an incident of that kind that happened to a friend of mine last month. Of course, of course, gentlemen, you are glorifying commonplaces. Every crime, I tell you, expresses itself in the terms of the picture puzzle that you feed to your six-year-old. It's only the variation that is interesting. Take the well-known instance of the visitor at a club and the rare coin, for example. You all know that story. You've heard uh, it. I don't, I don't think I have. Sure. Why, it's, it's very well known. Oh, go ahead, Quinny. Tell it. A distinguished visitor is brought into a club. A dozen men, say, present at dinner, long table. Conversation finally veers around to curiosities and relics. One of the members present then takes from his pocket what he announces as one of the rarest coins in existence. Passes it around the table. Coin travels back and forth, everyone examining it. And the conversation goes to another topic. All at once, the owner calls for his coin. It is nowhere to be found. Everyone looks at everyone else. First, they suspect a joke. Then it becomes serious. The coin is immensely valuable. Who has taken it? The owner is a gentleman. Does the gentlemanly, idiotic thing, of course. Laughs as he knows someone is playing a practical joke on him and that the coin will be returned tomorrow. The others refuse to leave the situation so. One man proposes that they all submit to a search. Everyone gives his assent until it comes to the stranger. He refuses, curtly, roughly, without giving any reason. Uncomfortable silence. The man is a guest. No one knows him particularly well, but still he is a guest. One member tries to make him understand that no offense is offered. That the suggestion was simply to clear the atmosphere. The stranger becomes very firm, very proud and says, I refuse to allow my person to be searched, and I refuse to give the reason for my action. Another silence. The visitor evidently has the coin, but he is their guest, and etiquette protects him. <laughs> nice situation, eh? Well, What's the well. answer? The table is cleared. A waiter removes a dish of fruit, and there, under the ledge of the plate, where it's been pushed, is the coin. Banal explanation, eh? Of course. Solutions always should be. At once, everyone apologizes to him. Whereupon the visitor rises and says, Now I can give you the reason for my refusal to be searched. There are only two known specimens of that coin in existence. And the second happens to be here in my vest pocket. That's rather obvious. <laughs> of course, the story is well invented. But the turn to it is very nice. Very nice, indeed. Well, I don't know. The ending is very unsatisfactory. The... Visitor should have had on him not another coin, but uh, something absolutely different, something uh, destructive, say, of a, a woman's reputation. And a great tragedy should have been threatened by the casual misplacing of the coin. Well, I've heard the same story told in a dozen different ways. Oh, it's happened a hundred times. It must continually happen. I know of one extraordinary instance, in fact, the most extraordinary instance of this sort I've ever heard. Peters, you rascal. I see you've been quietly letting us set the stage for you. Well, it's not a story that will please everyone. Why not? Because you will want to know what no one can ever know. It has no conclusion, then? Yes and no. As far as it concerns a woman, quite the most remarkable woman I've ever met, the story is complete. Uh, do I know the woman? Possibly. Probably, I should say. Uh-huh. As a matter of fact, this should be particularly interesting to you because <clears throat> I believe that most of you are acquainted with the people involved. Uh, the names, of course, are disguised. I think... Uh, yes, I have. Just time before I catch my train to tell it to you. 
Mrs. Rita Kildare inhabited a charming bachelor girl studio. Very elegant. With a duplex pattern and one of the buildings just off Central Park West. She knew very nearly everyone in that indescribable society in New York that's drawn from all levels and that imposes but one condition for membership, to be amusing. In this mingled society, her invitations were eagerly sought. Her dinners were spontaneous, and the discussions, though gay and usually daring, were invariably under the control of wit and good taste. On the Sunday night of this adventure, she had, according to our custom, sent away her Filipino butler and invited to an informal chafing dish supper seven of her more unusual friends. At seven o'clock, having finished dressing, she put in order her bedroom, which formed a sort of free passage between the studio and a small dining room, to the kitchen beyond. Then, going into the studio, she struck a match and was about to light the candlesticks which illuminated the room when the bell rang. And a Mr. Flanders, a broker, compact, nervously alive, well-groomed, was waiting as she opened the door. Well, you're early. On the contrary, you are late. <laughs> well, in any case, hello, and come inside. Here, let me take your things. Thank you. Well, I'm the first, I suppose. Of course. And since you are, you can be a good boy and help me with the candles. Delighted. Who's to be here tonight? The Enos Jacksons. I thought they were separated. Not yet. How interesting. Only you, dear lady, would dream of serving us a couple on the verge. It is interesting, isn't it? Assuredly. Uh, where did you know Jackson? Through the Warings. Jackson's a rather doubtful person, isn't he? Uh, well, let's call him a very sharp lawyer. They tell me, though, he's been gambling pretty much. In deep. How about yourself? Oh, me? I'm a bachelor. If I lose my shirt, it makes no difference. Is that possible? Probably even. Who else is coming? Oh, uh, Maud Lilly. You know her? No, I don't think so. You met her here some time ago, a journalist. Oh, yes, yes, of course. I'd forgotten. Mr. Harris, the clubman, is coming, and the Stanley Cheevers. Stanley Cheevers? Are we going to gamble? Don't tell me you object. <laughs> Certainly not. Only the Cheevers. <laughs> they play quite a game. Yes, well united. <laughs> they have an unusual streak of good luck. <laughs> oh, by the way, it's uh, Jackson, isn't it, who is so attractive to Mrs. Cheever? Quite right. What a charming party. Hey, where does Maud Lilly come in? Don't joke. She's in a desperate way. And John Harris? Oh, he's to make the salad and cream the chicken. Ah, see the whole party. I, of course, am to add the element of respectability. Of what? Don't play baby with me, my dear Flanders. I apologize. That's better. No one, of course, knows who else is coming. No one, of course. <laughs> Stanley Cheevers entered. A short, fat man with a vacant, fat face and slow-moving eye. And his wife, voluble, nervous, overdressed, and pretty. Mr... Yes, Mr. Harris came in with Maud Lilly. A woman, straight, dark, Indian, great masses of somber hair, held in a little too loosely for neatness, with thick, quick lips and eyes that rolled away from the person who was talking to her. The Enos Jacksons were late and still agitated as they entered. 
His forehead had not quite banished the scowl, nor her eyes the scorn. He was of the type that never lost his temper, but caused others to lose theirs. Mrs. Jackson seemed fastened to her husband by an invisible leash. You looked at her curiously and wondered what such a nature would do in a crisis with a lurking sense of a woman who carried with her her own impending tragedy. As soon as the company had been completed and the incongruity of the selection had been perceived, a smile of malicious anticipation ran the rounds, which the hostess cut short by saying, Well, well, now that everyone's here, this is the order for the night. You can quarrel all you want, you can whisper all the gossip you can think of about one another, but everyone is to be amusing. Also, everyone is to help with dinner. And nothing formal, nothing serious. We may all be bankrupt, divorced, or dead tomorrow, but tonight we'll be gay. That's the invariable rule of the house. For she's a jolly good fellow, for she's a jolly good fellow, for she's a jolly good fellow, which nobody can deny. <laughs> oh, thanks, everyone. Now, if you'll excuse me, I'll get on with the cooking. Uh, Harris, I'll need you. Right with you. May I be of any help? Thank you, Maud, dear. Oh, Mrs. Cheever, you might right. come along, too. All right. This is an adorable bedroom. Oh, thank you, dear. Uh, now for my apron. Oh, there it is. Uh, tie me up in the back, will you please, Maud? Of course. There you are. Fine, thanks. Now just let me get my rings off and I'll be all ready to go to work. Oh, this is such a lovely apartment, Mrs. Kildare. Thanks. Soap and water always seem to do it. Ah, there. Your rings are so beautiful. They are nice, aren't they? But there's only one that's very valuable, the sapphire. Oh, it's beautiful. Let me see. Oh, it must be very valuable. It cost 10000 six years ago. It's been my talisman ever since. For the moment, however, I'm a cook. You're not going to leave the rings there. Why, of course. Now, I'm the cook. Uh, Maud Lilly, you're the scullery maid. Harris is the chef, and we're all under his orders. Mrs. Cheever, mm. did you ever peel onions? Oh, good heavens, no. <laughs> well, there are no onions to peel. All you have to do is help set the table. Under their hostess's gay guidance, the seven guests began to circulate busily through the rooms, laying the table, grouping the chairs, opening bottles, and preparing the material for the chafing dishes. Mrs. Kildare, in the kitchen, ransacked the icebox and with her own hand shredded the chicken and measured the cream. Flanders, carry this in carefully. Cheever, stop watching your wife and put the salad bowl on the table. <laughs> Everything ready, Harris? All set. All right, uh, everyone sit down. I'll be right in. She went into her bedroom, took off her apron and hung it in the closet. Then going to her dressing table, she drew the hat pin around which were her rings from the pincushion and carelessly slipped them on her fingers. But all at once, she frowned and looked quickly at her hand. Only two rings were there. The third ring, the sapphire, was missing. Stupid. She said to herself and returned to her dressing table. Immediately, she stopped. 
She remembered quite clearly putting the hat pin through the three rings. She made no attempt to search further, but remained without moving, her fingers slowly drumming on the table. Who had taken the ring? Each of her guests had had a dozen opportunities in the course of the time she'd been busy in the kitchen. She ran over their characters and their situations as she knew them. Strangely enough, at each, her mind stopped upon some reason that might explain a sudden temptation. To find out nothing this way, that's not the important thing to me just now. The important thing is to get the ring back. And slowly, deliberately, she began to walk back and forth, a clenched hand beating the deliberate, rhythmic measure of her journey. Five minutes later, as Harris installed a chef over the chafing dish, was giving directions, spoon in the air, Mrs. Kildare came into the room like a lengthening shadow. Her entrance had been made with scarcely a perceptible sound, and yet each guest was aware of it at the same moment, with a little nervous start. Heavens, heavens, dear lady, you've come in on us like a Greek tragedy. What is it you have for us, a surprise? I have something to say to you. Mr. Enos Jackson. Yes, Miss Kilder? Kindly do as I ask you. Well, certainly. Go to the door. Go to the door? Please. Yes? Lock it. And bring me the key. There you are. You've locked it? As you wish me to. Thank you. Now, the bedroom door. Would you do the same? Sure. Thank you, Mr. Jackson. Mr. Cheever. Yeah? Would you blow out all the candles except the candelabra on the table? Blow out all the candles? Except the candelabra. All right. <laughs> For goodness sake, Mrs. Kildare. What is it? I am getting terribly worked up. My, my nerves are all sorry, amazing. Mrs. Jackson. That's the last candle. All right. Now listen. My sapphire ring has just been stolen. Oh, you don't see it. The ring's been taken within the last 20 minutes. I'm not going to mince words. The ring has been taken, and the thief is among you. Well, but Mrs. Kildare, is it possible? Yes, Mrs. Cheever. There's not the slightest doubt. Three of you were in the bedroom when I placed my rings on the pincushion. Quite true. I was in the room when she took them off. The sapphire ring was on top. Each of you has passed through there a dozen times since. My sapphire ring is gone. And one of you has taken it. Now, listen. I'm not going to miss words. I'm not going to stand on ceremony. But I'm going to have my ring back. Listen to me carefully. I'm going to have that ring back. And until I do, not a soul shall leave this room. I don't care who's taken it. All I want is my ring. Now, I'm going to make it possible for whoever took it to restore it without possibility of detection. The doors are locked and will stay locked. I'm going to blow out the remaining candles in the candelabra. And we're going to count 100 slowly. It'll be in absolute darkness. No one will know or see what's done. But if, at the end of that time, the ring is not here on the table, I shall telephone the police. 
and have everyone in this room searched. Am I quite clear? Everyone take his place about the table and uh, remain standing, please. That's it. That'll do. Now, I'll blow out the candles and count 100. No more, no less. Remember, either I get that ring or everyone in this room will be searched. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen, fourteen, fifteen, sixteen, seventeen, eighteen, nineteen. Twenty, twenty-one, twenty-two, twenty-three, twenty-four, <clears throat> twenty-five, twenty-six, twenty-seven, twenty-eight, twenty-nine, thirty, thirty-one, thirty-two, thirty-three, thirty-four, thirty-five, thirty-six, thirty-seven, thirty-eight. 39, 40, 41, 42, 43, 44, 45, 46, 47, 48, 49, 50, 51, 52, 53, 54, 55, 56, 57, 58, 59, 60, 61, 62, 63, 64, 65, 66, 67, 68, 69, 70, 71, 72, 73, the ring, 74, well, it is. 75, 76, yes. 77, 78, 79, 80, 81, 82, 83, 84, 85, 86, 87, 88, oh, really? 89, 90, 91, one hundred. Mr. Cheever, you may hand it to me. Well, now that that's over, we can have a very gay little supper. The light, someone. And there you are, gentlemen. Oh, I say, Peters... That's not all. Absolutely. The story ends there? Story ends there. But uh, who took the ring? <laughs> what? You mean, never found out? Never. No clue? None. I'm not sure I like the story. Uh, it's no story at all. Permit me, it is a story. And it is complete. 
In fact, I consider it unique because it has none of the banalities of a solution and leaves the problem even more confused than at the start. Well, I don't of see... Of course what... you don't see, my dear Enkin. You do not see that any solution would be commonplace, whereas no solution leaves an extraordinary intellectual problem. Well, how so? Well, in the first place, whether the situation actually happened or not, which is in itself a mere triviality, Peters has constructed it in a masterly way, the proof of which is that he has made me listen. Any of those present might have taken the ring. There are therefore seven solutions, all possible and all logical. But beyond this is left a great intellectual problem. How so? Was it a woman who lacked the necessary courage to continue? Or was it a man who repented his first impulse? Is a man or is a woman the greater natural criminal? Oh, that's simple, Quinny. A woman took it, of course. Well, on the contrary, it was a man, for the second action was more difficult than the first. A man, certainly. The restoration of the ring was a logical decision. You see? Personally, I incline to a woman, for the reason that a weaker feminine nature is strangely susceptible to the domination of her own sex. There you are. We could meet and debate the subject year in and year out and never agree. Uh... I, I recognize most of the characters, Peters. Uh, Mrs. Kildare, of course, is all you say of her. An extraordinary woman. The story is quite characteristic of her. Flanders, I'm not sure of, but I think I know him. I'm positive I do. Did it really happen? Exactly as I told it. The only one I don't recognize is Harris, your humble servant. What? You, Peters? You were there? I was there. I was Harris. I beg your pardon, gentlemen. Oh, yes, what is it, John? Mr. Peters, sir, your train. You told me to remind you. Oh, thank you. Yes, I didn't know it was so late. Will you gentlemen pardon me? Huh? Of course. Nice to meet you all. Good night. Curious chap. Extraordinary. Well, now, I... I wonder... I wonder if we're wondering the same thing, gentlemen. And so, with the enigmatic smile of Mr. Peters, or Harris, ends 100 in the Dark, Owen Johnson's smooth story which gave us tonight's... Suspense. Suspense is produced by William Spear. Tonight's radio drama was written by Jack Anson Fink, directed by John Dietz, and scored by Bernard Herman. Eric Dressler was Mr. Peters. Alice Frost played Mrs. Kildare, and Ted Osborne, Quinny. Others in the cast were Helen Lewis, Joan Shea, Henriette Kay, Frank Reddick, Paul Luther, Stefan Schnabel, Ian Martin, and Barry Kroger. With this evening's performance, Columbia brings to a conclusion the present series of Suspense. If you've liked these broadcasts, CBS would be pleased to hear from you. Suspense has been a series presented for your relaxation and enjoyment by the Columbia Broadcasting System.
sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a Swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.